Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. And we're back. Welcome to the second series of Politics as Usual podcast. Sorry about the slight delay since the first series went out, but you know how it is when you're trying to get something done. Kids need their dinner, the washing machine is emptying, you need to go to Baghdad, all the usual sort of stuff. Anyway, never mind all that. We're now back for a second series of podcast interviews with politicians and people involved in politics. Uh, In an attempt to try and improve the regularity of the podcast, we'll do one of these every two weeks and see how far we get. We mentioned uh, right at the beginning uh, of the podcast series that the idea behind this was to interview politicians about how and why they went into politics in the first place. As I've said previously, our work in places like Iraq and Sudan, Tanzania, the Balkans, Nepal and many other countries means that I'm constantly finding myself in fascinating conversations with people who entered politics to try and do good things with a genuine sense of wanting to achieve change and who have often very specific, personally inspiring stories as to why they went into politics in the first place. There is a lot of cynicism about politics and politicians, which we see in the UK and in many parts of the world. And as I record this, uh, places like Baghdad and Beirut, cities which I know well, are gripped by mass protests in protest at corruption and the way government is being run. And in many countries, in many parts of the world, there are many, many reasons to protest and much to be cynical about. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that a lot of politicians are in it for the right reasons, trying to do the right things. And if there was ever a time we needed to remember that, and if there was ever a time we needed good politicians, it's now. So we hope to provide some sort of antidote to the general perception that all politicians are the same through these next set of interviews. We start with um, Helen Clark in this series. Helen was the Labour Prime Minister of New Zealand between 1999 and 2008 and the only Labour leader to win three consecutive elections. After that, between 2009 and 2017, she was the administrator of the United Nations Development Programme and highly regarded in both of those jobs, she ran for General Secretary of the UN in 2016. Unfortunately, she was unsuccessful. But if you're interested, there's a very interesting film called My Year with Helen, which tracks that process of trying to get elected as Secretary General and highlights as Helen herself said how difficult it is to break through certain glass ceilings still. She remains active internationally on issues ranging from climate change to open government, drugs policy and women's leadership. And one of the organisations that she's active in is the Club de Madrid, which some of you will know about. And I caught her earlier this year when she was here with the Club de Madrid uh, for an event on trust in politics, which I was very pleased to be involved in myself. By way of background, the Club de Madrid's World Leadership Alliance is an organisation which brings together more than 100 democratically elected former presidents and prime ministers who focus on some of the major challenges facing government around the world, including people such as Bill Clinton, Mikhail Gorbachev and Mary Robinson. They are obviously able to draw on a huge amount of experience and expertise to address some of these challenges. Take a look at their website for more information, but needless to say, we are delighted to be collaborating with them on this podcast, and we hope to be collaborating with them on many more in the future. This interview with Helen is slightly shorter than the standard one in that I caught her in between interviews while she was very briefly in London. 
I think after me, she was dashing off to be interviewed by Al Jazeera about something. So we only had about half an hour. It was a shame because, uh, as you'll hear, um, her early life on a rural farm in, in New Zealand is, is fascinating. And how these early experiences leave an indelible mark on politicians is something I'm fascinated by. So it's a shame we didn't get a chance to talk to her for longer about that. But nonetheless, a thoroughly interesting conversation with a thoroughly interesting woman. I hope you enjoy. I mean, the first question is really, well, how did you become involved in politics in the, in the first place? My family was always interested in politics, and across the family, they identified with different parts of the political spectrum. So it wasn't strange for me to think of being involved in politics as something you just did. When I went to university in the late 1960s, the campuses in New Zealand, like in Europe and North America at the time, were very political, largely around foreign policy issues. And I became involved in those issues. And that's what eventually led me to a political career. And what, what was that, that background? You, I mean, you came from... What, what did your parents do? You said there were sort of... Your politics was in the family, but was it... How did you... What, what, I'm just trying to get a sense of where you grew up and how, you, how that transition occurred. Well, I grew up on a farm uh, in a rural area of New Zealand. Uh, my dad was a farmer. My mother never worked on the farm. She uh, ran the home and uh, was involved in local activities and brought up us as children and was on the school committee and uh, things like that. My father was quite involved politically, conservative at the time. He changed his views over the years. Uh, But my mother's family also had some uh, history of voting for Labour, which was eventually what I joined. On my father's side, his grandfather had been uh, very for the Labour Party. So the the family was all over the place politically, but it, it was seen as very legitimate to have political interests. And what, and what led you to, to Labour politics? Because your career, you seem to have been involved in Labour politics from quite an early early age. Yes, I was involved first in uh, the uh, student movements uh, around big foreign policy causes. So there was the anti-apartheid movement of the uh, late 60s, early 70s, Uh, There was the movement against French nuclear testing in the South Pacific. There was the movement against the Vietnam War and New Zealand's participation in it. Now, if you were involved in all those causes, you weren't going to be a conservative because conservatives tended to defend the, the rugby relationship with South Africa. They didn't say much about French nuclear testing in the South Pacific And, of course, that committed New Zealand to the war in Vietnam. So, inevitably, you gravitated to the New Zealand Labour Party, which was prepared to take a stand on those issues. At which point, then, did you decide you would like to be a politician, an active elected politician? When I was at the university as a student, that wasn't so much on my mind. I was involved in, in the causes, I was involved in the local branch of the of the Labour Party, but I did begin uh, putting my name forward for candidacies for local elections. The system at that time was quite stacked against uh, Labour in Auckland City, so it was almost impossible to win. I did uh, 
also stand for a constituency in a rural area for the Labour Party at the national elections. It was a seat that couldn't be won, but the sort of seat you try if you're interested in a political career. That was 1975. And then uh, by beginning of the 1980s I was ready to try for something serious and that's when I went forward for selection for a safe parliamentary constituency for the Labour Party and won it. What was it that that drove that? Because was it, it, you mentioned the big political issues which were, you know, know, um, in the publicity at the time. Um, I've read somewhere that your, was your MA thesis on rural political behaviour? so, and this is, if you like, a, a it seems to be your interest is both at the global level, those big political issues, but also at the, the local level as well. Going into politics, was it a combination of those things which drove you? What did you go in hoping to achieve? Uh, what attracted me originally was wanting to see New Zealand government change so it could change the foreign policy decisions, but of course. To go into domestic politics, you can't rest your career on that. You must also identify with the hopes and aspirations of people uh, living their lives in New Zealand. And I came from a very uh, privileged generation, a post-war generation, where our families and governments of the time worked to create a lot of opportunity and security for us. And my desire was to see that carry on for future generations. So... Uh, For my uh, domestic political career, I was very much focused on the basics of of jobs and the health system and the social security safety net and education opportunity, uh, the the bread and butter, if you like, of uh, Labour politics. The the seat, I'm trying to remember what the electoral system was at the time, it was before the mixed member system, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? So you would have had a constituency. Yes. And I guess a lot of your time would have been spent dealing with day-to-day issues of of constituents. Well, very much so. I had a constituency office. Uh, Before the state ever funded them, uh, I funded uh, my own one and had someone working with me because... How how did you fund it? Well, you just had to pay it out of your your salary. But uh, the truth is that you could not do uh, the job that needed to be done uh, on your own with no no support. When I first went to Parliament, we shared a parliamentary secretary each, and they really didn't do constituency work. Uh, not so long after I went to Parliament, maybe three years later, there was a proper system of support set up. But my constituency office was... Uh, very much involved in making representations on behalf of people with respect to Social Security, their accident compensation claims, uh, their place in the queue for public uh, housing, uh, for uh, hospital waiting lists, very, very much bread and butter. And increasingly over the years, also because it was a central city electorate, there was quite a lot of uh, new migrant uh, populations and they had also particular interest and needs about family reunification and uh, and immigration related matters. And did you, I'm fascinated by this, I'm at the moment in the process of writing a book about what politicians do in different parts of the world. Constituency work is, often seems to be the most absorbing part, especially in, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East and North Africa. It's the most time-consuming, but also the most expensive part of the job because there is an expectation you will just 
be able to fix these problems. Is mm. this sense that the politician is there to fix things, so therefore I'm going to the politician, they will fix things. Did you have that same sort of pressure on you in, in New Zealand at the time? Well, the, obviously it was a hope that you might be able to do something for people. Uh, of course, there are always rules around entitlements and... Uh, so you look for where there might be discretion, where someone's case hasn't been well represented and where a good representation from you as the Member of Parliament might be able to make a difference for someone. Has there been an injustice? Has something been overlooked? You're not looking to, to bend rules or get favours done, but you're looking for people to be properly treated according to the processes that are established. And what was the, the, the thing which surprised you most when, when, when you were elected as a new Member of Parliament? What was the thing which struck you most forcefully about, about the job or surprised you? I guess I'd been around long enough not to be too surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but when I went to Wellington each week as a new Member of Parliament, actually the environment was not a particularly welcoming one for uh, young women members. It was a very, very male environment. We were eight women out of 92, which was under 9% of the parliament, and there really wasn't any expectation that the, the woman would ever go very far. And that, of course, was a bit of a surprise to me because I'd grown up uh, in an all-girl family, going to an all-girl school, being in equal numbers with young men at university, you know, having a, had a job as a university teacher, I'd never really expected to face that sort of atmosphere. So that did surprise me a bit. Mm. And what then was it... I don't, I don't want to falsely put two, two things together and come up with a hypothesis, but what sort of... Was, was part of that what pushed you forward to wanting to become a cabinet minister and, and eventually prime minister? Or was it time no. Uh, when I went into politics I did have aspirations to be a cabinet minister and that would have been the limit of ambition at that time because being the leader just would have been seen to be <laughs> unrealistic uh, as it were because you're coming in at the, the bottom of the ladder uh, very few women had ever been cabinet ministers uh, but I did feel that you know the culmination of a good parliamentary career would be to to be a minister and that happened for me after I'd been in Parliament for, for six years. But uh, becoming the leader of the party and then becoming Prime Minister didn't become a realistic aspiration until you know, I'd been in Parliament for 12 years and then uh, I contested for the party leadership, won it, and that made me leader of the opposition, which I held for six years. And at what point did you think this is, well, this is a possibility, becoming a leader, becoming a Prime well, becoming leader became a possibility 12 years into the parliamentary uh, career. Uh, becoming Prime Minister was really quite tough. Uh, that uh, took, took a while to work <laughs> through. Uh, but uh, from 1993 on, it was the aspiration. And what, I mean, to sort of repeat the, the question that I asked earlier about what surprised you most about becoming a Member of Parliament, did things surprise you once you were Prime Minister about... I was there. There was a report recently. Um, uh, for, uh, they quote, I think, somebody from the, the former Danish prime minister who said, "The scarcest resource in government is coordination." 
um, which I thought was very telling and reminded me of my own time in government. But what, what really struck you when you, on your first day as, as Prime Minister? So, in the leadership career, the issue that reared its head when I was leader of the opposition was the gender issue again, because people weren't used to having a woman in a leadership position. So that was quite difficult. And the the kind of scrutiny and comment was uh, very different towards me um, compared with what it was towards male politicians and leaders. So I had to work through through that as well. By the time I became Prime Minister, I wasn't you know, too shocked by anything. I had been a senior minister years before. I'd been Deputy Prime Minister. So I'd, I'd observed a lot of Prime Ministers and how they'd run things, and I had ideas on how to run things. And so uh, I was uh, pretty hands-on, and I made sure that I had also effective support in my office to help me uh, to be the chair of the board with an overview of, uh, of what was happening. Uh, so I did keep a pretty close eye on people. I didn't micromanage, but I did make sure that things were coordinated. And that's, that's within your office itself, but across the departments as well in government? You have a, a Prime Minister's department whose, whose job is to, to you know, keep you informed. You have a Cabinet office. New Zealand also uh, practices a rather pure form of Cabinet government, more for, pure, I think, than <laughs> the United Kingdom itself. Uh, I, I remember on one occasion John Prescott, as Deputy Prime Minister, visited New Zealand and he came into my office. I was Prime Minister and he saw all these big red boxes on my desk and he said what are they and I said those are the papers for the cabinet committee meetings tomorrow morning he said what do you mean and I said well I said we discuss everything thoroughly at a cabinet committee and then by the time it gets to the cabinet really it's a matter of ratification that the concerns should have been aired by then and if there were further division, it would go back to a committee. He said, oh, that's not the way it works at home. <laughs> and I, I got the impression that there was much less cabinet government, actually, than uh, in New Zealand. It's, I, I get the sense, I mean, perhaps especially since the change of the electoral system, but the need for that um, collaboration, coordination, communication. Um, uh, before we started recording, I, I mentioned that, that uh, we'd met in New Zealand previously. On that visit... Uh, we actually sat through the sat through the business managers meeting between the different parties, negotiating the business in the parliament. And it's it's a to a, a British audience, it will seem different from from the experience of, of, of Westminster. Well, I think it is different because you need a lot more give and take between parties to to make parliament work successfully, where everyone can have their say. But you have some understanding about the the way in which the business will, will be conducted. There's really no surprises in the New Zealand system anymore. And, of course, uh, with government since the introduction of proportional representation, there has never been a single-party majority government from 1996 on. Uh, so you may have a government in which almost all the ministers are from your party, but you won't have enough votes in the parliament to carry with just your party. So inevitably it does involve a lot more consultation with other parties. Mm. And were you personally involved in that? Didn't you? Was that well, at, at a general? high level, 
at a high level I would uh, meet with the parties with whom we had either coalition or confidence and supply agreements, but a lot of the work was done below my level. It would have been done uh, at the ministerial level with, with spokespersons. It would have been done at my chief of staff level working with uh, uh, the, the chief people and ministers' offices. So there was quite an elaborate system of coordination. And how, how I mean, your, your time as Prime Minister is sort of characterised by, by your reputation you know, growing, growing for independence, thoughtfulness, that sort of collaboration. Um, but you then became the UNDP administrator um, mm. subsequently. And I just wondered how many of those, those skills you brought to bear to the, to the UNDP as well. Well, pretty much the same skills because, you know, UNDP and certainly the UN system as a whole uh, tends to be very, very siloed and uh, trying to get a better coordinated across that system will be probably a, you know, a century's work if it, if it succeeds at all. But at least within UNDP, you could uh, run up a bit like a, a cabinet of ministers and actually require that people turn up for you know, proper meetings of the, the senior management and stick by decisions that are taken. I found when I went there that there was no uh, tradition of that, that everybody worked in their silos, the administrator previously had not been in uh, the habit of calling such meetings. Uh, and so having come from that to then someone like me who mm. expected to lead and coordinate, uh, one would find people would go away from meetings and then try to argue about what had been decided. So you had to be very firm that this wasn't the way we're going to operate. We, we reach a decision and you, you go on and implement it. You don't keep second-guessing it. So... Uh, that uh, took some while to instill. What was it that attracted you about that, that job as UNDP administrator? Well, firstly, when you've been a long-term Prime Minister in New Zealand, there is nowhere else to go in New Zealand. And I think uh, if you look around the world at parliamentary systems where former Prime Ministers hang around in the Parliament, it's never really a, a very successful um, uh, outcome. So uh, definitely I was looking for something to do beyond New Zealand and this position came up, which of course traditionally has been one of the very most senior positions in the UN system. Before there was a Deputy Secretary General, the Administrator of UNDP was always number two uh, in the system. And it, it appealed to me because I, of course, I was extremely interested in uh, international affairs and uh, secondly, I could bring all the skills I had across a very wide range of policy areas to UNDP. And I found that the mandate it was working on, there was almost nothing that it did that I had not been connected to. I'd worked across environments, social policy, economic policy, better governance, you name it, I'd, I'd, I'd been there. So I was able to bring those skills to. And did you achieve what you wanted to in that role? At UNDP? Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, in many ways, yes. Uh, it wasn't easy because I came in the immediate aftermath of the uh, global financial crisis. I arrived there in April 2009, just after Gordon Brown's trillion-dollar uh, package with the with the G20 uh, had been agreed. And of course, initially, the response to the global financial crisis was a Keynesian one, but it quickly shifted to one of uh, cutting uh, budgets. And that affected funding terribly. And so we had to, over the years, cope with much less 
core and strategic funding, much more tag funding, but still try to be strategic and uh, keep to uh, a mandate, uh, keep raising the money. Uh, but we did manage to improve the strategic planning. Uh, by the time I left, we'd had 10 or 11 years of uh, clean audit reports, which was a distinct yeah. improvement on the past. We were rated the uh, the most transparent development organisation in the world, better that, than Diffid, the World Bank. That was specifically as a, as a result of measures that we took uh, on transparency. Uh, so that was a considerable achievement. And you obviously bid for the post of Secretary General uh, subsequently, mm. Um, mm. which, and you seem to run an exceptionally good campaign, but it went mm. to, to uh, Antonio Guterres. Mm. Yeah, well, well, it did. And... Uh, it's a matter of record that the majority of the candidates were female yeah. and none of them ever scored in the top uh, top group. Uh, so I think uh, there was an issue there. And it's to me, it's like, you know, every so often in my career, I've come up and hit those ceilings. Uh, initially, when I was a young member of Parliament, you know, the reception was hostile. When I was leader of the opposition, it was hostile. Uh, and then you jump over all that and... The great thing about New Zealand is you can run into glass ceilings, but you eventually crash through. At the UN, that hasn't happened yet. It will one day. It's a question of when, and already it's uh, rather late. And you're now involved in the, the, the Club mm. de Madrid, um, mm. uh, who very helpfully organised this, mm. this interview, um, and bringing those skills to bear on, on this. What, what do you see as your priorities now with the Club de Madrid or uh, with your foundation? So I think if you've had you know, decades of leadership experiences I've had, you've uh, learned a lot of skills along the way. And uh, you can also you know, inspire others to see uh, a life in politics as an honourable profession. Uh, I find in, in many countries uh, politics is looked on as somehow dirty, somehow corrupt, somehow not honourable. Well... If that's how people think of politics, they'll get the politicians they deserve, which won't be very good. Uh, so inspiring people of, of good intent, regardless of political philosophy, to uh, come forward, stand, uh, contest, uh, be part of the democratic process, that's important to me. And this is, I mean, in terms of pursuing um, your, your post-UNDP work, are you still interested in uh, areas that the UNDP is working in, such as a sustainable development goals and bringing your skills to bear. I stay very active on the global development issues. I get asked to talk an enormous amount about the sustainable development goals, how they're doing, and about particular areas within them. And I tend to speak and comment across the, the big picture, uh, the way in which uh, poverty eradication is very much connected with whether we can get on top of the uh, serious environmental challenges I, I get involved in non-communicable diseases issues, still talk a little and, and comment on uh, HIV, which I've had a long-standing uh, interest in addressing global commission on drug policy. I do quite a lot with women's leadership. So, yeah, I'm active across a, a lot of issues. And what, what's your judgment on the SDGs so far? I think the SDGs are in some trouble. Um, Governments pay lip service to them and they queue up at the high-level political forum to say, here's what we're doing, whether or not they've got a strategy. But if you look at some of the key indicators like progress on poverty eradication and hunger eradication, the trends are not 
positive. Uh, and then you look at a goal like the Climate Change One, which is so linked to the Paris Agreement outcome. Very, very slow progress. I think Secretary-General commented last year that we're 80% short of the level of commitment needed to keep global warming under the 1.5 degree target. Well, that's pretty disastrous. Uh, last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said we had 12 years uh, to turn the tide. Well, now it's 11. And yes, it is geophysically, economically and technologically possible, but the political will has been lacking. And what do you think, I mean, so what do we do? I mean, what would be your the final question? Um, the challenges for, for politicians, people in, in, in public life to address some of these things, where do we go from here? So I think at the, the global level, uh, the focus has to be on the 1.8 billion people, billion people, who live in what the OECD characterises as fragile contexts. I've just been in Afghanistan quite recently. It doesn't get much more fragile than that. Uh, so that's uh, a lot of people, and among those people are going to be the hundreds of millions that are still going to bed hungry every night in 2030 or are still living in extreme poverty in 2030 unless there's focus. So I think the international solidarity of the developed countries and actually of those involved in South-South cooperation as well has to be on those living in the poorest, most vulnerable and fragile contexts. Otherwise, we will get to 2030 with you know, literally hundreds of millions of people left behind and that's not a, a recipe for a peaceful world. Helen, thank you very much indeed. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. As I said before, a thoroughly interesting conversation with a thoroughly interesting woman. We'll be back in two weeks' time with the next of these interviews, which is with Valerie Amos. Um, again, a fascinating career, a really interesting background uh, as to how she got into British politics and then also the work that she's done internationally. So look forward to that. In the meantime, please do like and subscribe because as you hear at the end of every other podcast, it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. See you in a fortnight. Bye-bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.